Hi, welcome to the USA Fencing Coaching Education Podcast. I'm Sam Callen, your host. While the podcast is geared to coaches, I think many folks will find the topics of interest. Guests on the podcast will be fencers, coaches, club owners, and also for people from outside the fencing world who can contribute to improving coaching. If you have suggestions for a podcast topic or guest, please email me at s.callan at usafencing.org. That's s.callan at usafencing.org. Thanks, and enjoy the day's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Sam Cowan. I'm your host. Uh, joining me in a few minutes will be Jeremy Summers. Jeremy is our director of sports medicine here at USA Fencing, where he works with our national team athletes and also helps to coordinate the medical tent at our uh, national events, our NACs. Um, we had kind of a wide-ranging conversation here with Jeremy. We talk about uh, some injury, injury prevention. He gives a lot of great just take-home tips that you can start using immediately. We talk a little bit about uh, joint mobility and uh, flexibility along those lines. We even delve into uh, Asian uh, bathroom habits a little bit. And uh, we talk about different medical personnel that you may encounter and what to look for in a healthcare provider. And the USA Fencing website does have some information about that on the website in the sports medicine area where you can find uh, local um, physicians that can help you out. So with that, here is my interview with Dr. Jeremy Summers. Hi everyone, I'm Sam Callen. Welcome to today's USA Fencing podcast. Uh, joining me today is the USA Fencing Director of Sports Medicine, Jerry Summers. Jeremy Summer, sorry about that. Um, Jeremy has uh, himself is a longtime fencer and uh, works with our national team at many of our events. And you probably see him uh, in the medical tent at, at NACs and other events. Uh, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be here, and hopefully, some of the information we give uh, today will be useful. I'm confident that will be. Hey, first, uh, tell folks a little about your background as a as an athlete and a fencer. Absolutely, I've been in uh, fencing for over 25, 26 years now. Um, I got involved early in my high school career um, at Central High School in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, I fenced for about 10, 11 years. I was a four-time national team member and alternate to the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia. I retired early, decided not to take any uh, scholarships for NCAA, uh, being one of the top juniors in the country at the time, and just tried to train for the Olympic Games. I retired and uh, went on to get three different degrees. Uh, My first degree, uh, my undergraduate degree, was in athletic training and sports medicine in Parkville, Missouri, at Park University. And then I went on, taught in... um, couple different uh, universities, um, anatomy, physiology, and orthopedic assessment and so forth uh, until I got back into education. Um, got my doctorate in chiropractic and my master's in acupuncture and Chinese medicine and went on finally to finish my diplomate in chiropractic sports medicine. Um, that's a little bit about my educational background and my fencing career. Um, I, I was going to say, do you get to fence much these days? <laughs> I've been da- I've been dabbling a little bit in the last uh, a year or so uh, here and there, but um, I I too have some injuries I need to take care of um, <laughs> before I could actually practice on a regular basis. But it's it's actually for the first time in a, 
over a decade. It's uh, it's the first time I picked up a saber in almost 16 years, a couple years ago. So. Okay. Um, yeah, there's no irony at all in the fact that our director of sports medicine has some injuries that he's dealing with. None, none <laughs> whatsoever on that one. Great. Um, so to explain a little bit about your role with the national team and with USA Fencing as our director of sports medicine. Absolutely. Um, I, after I uh, graduated my doctorate degree in 2000, well, right before 2008, 2009, it was uh, – Right when the athletes were coming back uh, from Beijing, I reached out to the former uh, chief medical officer of USA Fencing, Peter Harmer, one of my mentors. Um, he uh, was a vital key component in, in my um, professional development as a sports medicine provider, doctor, athletic trainer, so forth. Um, I uh, had a good relationship with him. I was on the 1996 Junior World Championship team, and I had a pretty catastrophic injury um i had a grade two uh hamstring tear um i was in the team event we did a round robin of each weapon uh in each gender back in the day and uh, one of my teammates had an injury and i had to go in cold and i tore my hamstring um on one touch and then i tried to fence through it and tore it again so that's what that's how i got into sports medicine um in a nutshell I found my way back to U.S. Fencing. Peter bug, bugged me over the years to get back involved, and um, I, I wasn't ready uh, with my education and the timing. Uh, but after Beijing and getting ready to finish my doctorate, I, I reached out to Peter and said, "Hey, you know what? I'm 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 ready to get involved, and any uh, service that I can do to help out U.S. Fencing would be great." Um, worked with U.S. Fencing from 2008-9. Um, until uh, 2012. Uh, during this stint, I was just a regular staff member with USA Fencing. Um, I covered events all over the uh, country as well as uh, international senior World Cups and Grand Prix. And then in 2012, before the during the Olympic Games in London, uh, Peter had uh, expressed a desire to uh, stand down after 25 years of service. A volunteer service for running the sports medicine program for USA Fencing um, and asked me if I would consider taking over the role and I thought it would be an honor and that's how I kind of got involved. From 2012 to 2015 I served as a volunteer uh, chief medical officer for USA Fencing and um, I basically my roles and duties uh, were to uh, run the sports medicine fencing uh, program uh, across the country, making sure we have sports medicine providers covering our local NAC events, as well as providers uh, being scheduled to help our national teams, the Junior World Championships, uh, Vet World Championships uh, this year for the first time, and um, our para team as well. My role duties now uh, have changed since 2015 slightly. Um, in 2015, U.S. Fencing looked uh, to... Um, have a more in, involved role as the director of uh, sports medicine for the U.S. Uh, national team uh, for USA Fencing, uh, developing them and getting them ready for Rio and now Tokyo uh, to make sure that there's our athletes are healthy um, and have all the have all the special services that the USOC has to offer and follows up with them on a daily basis or weekly, monthly basis to make sure that they don't have any issues uh, along the way in their training and preparation for 
uh, for their success. So currently, um, in our sports medicine program, we have about 24 medical providers that we send to eight, inter, uh, eight domestic competition, as well as nationals. Um, and then we also uh, have our international senior events that may require, if the budget allows it, uh, for our squads, our six squads for our senior national team. So overall, um, I basically run the entire sports medicine program for domestic and international events, as well as manage the health care of all of our Olympic athletes. Quite a lot to have on your plate there. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a it's a it's a busy job. We have uh, about forty eight world uh, World Cups just for the national team, um, plus World Championships, Zonal Championships, uh, uh, Cadet Junior World Championships. Um, so there's there's an event every weekend. Um, do they all have sports medicine coverage? Not at this time. Uh, it's my, it's my ultimate goal in the future. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a busy schedule. There's a lot to do. Um, getting proper referrals for our Olympic athletes, as well as answering questions to our regular membership uh, that come in through the national office. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, probably explains a lot why you've not picked up a saber in a long time too. Um, you know, you said you got involved uh, in sports medicine through your own injuries. Um, maybe a highlight, you know, maybe a couple of or the top three acute injuries that you see, and maybe even tell folks what I mean by acute. And then also, you know, what are some ways that, uh, you know, coaches, athletes, parents can help the fencer avoid uh, those injuries or at least reduce the risk of them? I should say, probably better language to use and avoid them. Mm, not a problem. Um, over the years, uh, USA Fencing has been at the forefront of uh, gathering data, epidemiology data, or understanding the injuries that happen within our sport. Uh, Peter was a researcher, Peter Harmer, um, out of Williamette University, who I uh, mentioned earlier in the podcast was um, my mentor and running the program for 25 years. He developed a ideal surveillance system for fencing and, and just trying to create data points for uh, research basis and research purposes to understand the injuries that we see uh, in fencing in competition. Um, we did a study, uh, he did a study um, with his team um, a perspective study looking at uh, over five years looking at uh, time loss. So uh, over 2000, this was uh, 2001 to 2006 seasons. And we had 78,200 plus participants uh, fencing over those five years in our NAC events over across the country. And he recorded all of the injuries or strip calls that we have at uh, sports medicine for injury timeouts. Um, and he recorded all of those injuries that happened during that time. And he looked across the different data sets of male, female, the age, the weapon, as well as the rank um, and classification of the fencers. And what we found um, is that, obviously, uh, what a lot of us already know is that uh, fencing is a very, very unique sport. And uh, we don't have a huge injury rate across the board um, that actually uh, does not allow our, our fencers to actually uh, finish a competition. So that would be an acute injury, something that happens on the strip that's hasn't been there for maybe it's never happened before or maybe it's a first time injury or maybe it's a repeat injury that hasn't been bothering them for months or years. 
Um, so our, our actual rate of injury is not even one per 1,000 in, in a competition. It's actually 0.3 for uh, a competition overall. So the risk of serious injury and acute injury is pre- actually pretty low. Um, the types of injuries that we usually see in most other sports, that any type of sports that has ballistic stop, start, change, rapid direction, and activity, uh, like basketball and soccer and all these types of sports that you have to change direction quickly. Um, those are the types of the same injuries we see with those other sports. Um, <clears throat> when you look at the actual data that was gathered from this, this pretty amazing study, um, we only had 184 medical withdrawals over that five-year time. Um, and the injuries that actually tallied up um, were sprains and strains, were our most common acute injuries. Um, out of the 184 medical withdrawals, almost 100 of them um, out of the 184 were me- uh, sprains and strains. So a strain is a, an injury to the muscle, and a sprain is an injury to the ligament. So it could be a ligament of the knee or the ankle, um, and the muscles that usually are involved is hamstring, adductors, quadriceps, those types of things for muscle uh, strains. So those are the types of acute injuries that we see. Uh, chronic injuries are, are, are a different story, and we haven't done a lot of epidemiology research yet or published anything anyway. Um, but we see at our NA, in our NACs, we see a uh, common pattern of uh, acute chronic injuries, injuries that have been around for quite some time, um, usually typically over six months that just continue to nag and not go away. Uh, those are usually like tendonitis, um, usually uh, tendinopathies or tendonitis of, of around the joints, the muscles that are just being overused. Um, and that's usually what we kind of see. Um, not really taking people out of the actual competition, but uh, um, still bothering them and affecting their fencing, as well as strategies to prevent these types of things. Um, sprains and strains, pretty simple, is having a, a fairly decent uh, strength conditioning program. Uh, usually what happens with sprains and strains is that tissues fail when loads exceed uh, their available response to the load uh, applied. So if I'm, if I'm doing something and the muscle is not strong enough, um, or if I've changed direction too quickly and the ligament or the muscle surrounding the joint, the ligament has to take a little bit more of the uh, strain, and that's how we get our sprains. Um, <clears throat> but for acutely, some of these types of injuries, we, we can't stop. Um, you know, if I lunge on somebody else's foot, and you know, I'm going to sprain my ankle <laughs> regardless how strong I am. Um, so sometimes just the, the activity in sport itself um, – is going to predispose people to injury, and that's just uh, what we get with competing in sports. We know that there's some associated risk involved. So, does that answer the question pretty fairly? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I I was fascinated. I had not. Uh, I, I just it had never come up in a conversation you had previously that there was such good data on um, at least the competition um, side of that. And yeah, you, you're right. You've got two people who are. Uh, in close proximity to one another, moving at each other, you're going to bump into each other, you're going to roll ankles, you're going to do things like that that just um, come with the territory, so to speak. But it's it's good to hear that uh, fencing is certainly a, a pretty low-risk sport. And I, along those lines, because I think the hottest topic for the last couple of years and um, probably will be, I think, for a little while longer is, 
is concussion in sport, which, you know, pretty much unheard of in fencing. I mean, my guess is it's more, you know, somebody slips and falls and hits their head in the locker room at a club is probably more likely to cause that than the competition itself. Um, so, that's a gr- yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point to bring up, actually. We've been planning to do a retrospective study for head injuries in the sport of fencing. We've been collecting data for over five years. Um, the data sets that we have that are uh, really good are over the last three years uh, for head injuries. Uh, fencers do get concussions. Um, it's very, very rare, uh, but it does happen. I'd say at a NAC, we we sometimes we see uh, one or two. Um, are they actually concussions or are they actually uh, head injuries uh, or suspected concussions? That's always a gray area if you understand concussion and concussion valuation. All of our uh, sports medicine providers are trained in concussion uh, uh, assessment and diagnosis as well as management. So uh, it is something that is prevalent, but nobody in fencing is really collecting any data that we know of over across the across the globe uh, to uh, shed light on some of these things. So that's one thing that we're looking to do uh, in the future. But it 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 is a hot topic in the in the in the area of sports medicine and in sports in general, and, and parents want their kids to be safe and so forth. I'm actually managing the concussion right now on the Olympic team. It's his third. Um, so, you know, it, it does happen uh, when you have people flying at each other from different directions and uh, closing distance and moving their arms up to get their points on, you know, sometimes shoulders, elbows, mask to mask, bell guards to mask, um, and just running into each other could be a potential head injury. So it, it is there. Yeah. Um, the other things that we found in our study, I just want to just put this in oh, a, go ahead. a quick, quick point here before we get off this study is, um, just so other people understand, when we look at women versus gender across the spectrum in sports, we, we already know that women are more susceptible to injury across the spectrum in any sport. Um, and so with fencing, we found in our study, uh, perspective study from 2001 to 2006 is uh, thir- women usually have, they have about a 35% greater risk than men uh, to have an injury within competition that would actually require them to have a medical withdrawal. And Saber actually had, women's Saber actually had a 62% greater risk than foil and epi. So female Saber is the highest gr- rated group for injury. Um, so those are the ones of coaches, if a take-home message here is um, making sure your Saber fencer, your female Saber fencers are very strong. Um, and have a decent strength conditioning program getting up into, you know, the teens and out of their adolescence into their teens and and into adulthood. That would be the the thing to take home here. The last thing on the study is that um, overwhelmingly um, 63% of all reportable injuries in this study are lower extremity, meaning they're from the hip, knee, and ankle region usually. And the most common injury site um, that we usually see, I said muscle before, and uh, that's that's usually has to do with a hamstring. With 73% of hamstring injuries being our muscle strain area and, and quadriceps being only 27%. Um, and then the next thing would be ankle sprains. So just another thing to take a take-home message. Obviously, we do a lot of footwork and fencing. We're moving around. We're not using our upper body uh, with a lot of direct force as much as we are with the lower body changing direction. So uh, lower extremity injuries are more prevalent in fencing. So it, it's interesting. You notice the, the women as a 
hold 35% greater risk of an injury requiring withdrawal. But even if we go back and look at the the relatively small number of people who have to withdraw from medical, it yeah. those are still really small numbers. I mean, sometimes you hear, wow, 35% greater increase. Yeah, but you're talking about going from, you know, one per thousand to 1.3 per thousand. It's, yeah. again, not a huge, um, it's not really a huge number. It's a yeah. percentage it, of a small number. Yeah, it's not even, it's 0. 0.03 per 1,000. So oh, right. it's, it's pretty low. It's pretty low. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, I had my, I looked at the wrong numbers or I was jotting down notes um, on that. So pretty good. Um, well, kind of taking this to the next step. Uh, so there, there are a lot of different, um, shouldn't say people, but um, sort of occupations or uh, healthcare providers that can that an athlete can come in contact with. We have, you know, athletic trainers. We've got massage therapists. We've got physiotherapists. We've got, you know, um, uh, physical therapists, chiropractors, DOs, GPs. I could probably just go and put letters together and, and something would connect there. Um, yep. How about we talk a little bit about what what each of those brings to the table for the athlete and um, you know, maybe some of the scope of practice for each of those. And I, I, I'll start with the athletic trainer um, just because it's the first one I had sort of thought about when I was thinking about kind of a, a little bit of a hierarchy of the health care providers. And the athletic Absolutely. trainer is oftentimes that, uh, at least in some sports and in high school settings, that may be the person that the athlete has the most contact with. Um, you know, again, in high school setting, if your high school has an athletic trainer. So let me talk a little bit about what athletic trainers bring to the table and, you know, what is their scope of practice? Absolutely. Um, so I actually, this is a great topic. Uh, I actually just wrote an article for American Fencing Magazine. I just turned it in a, a couple weeks ago, so I don't know which issue it's going to come out in, but this is the exact topic that we covered is how to find a quality sports medicine provider. Um, and what are the differences between the providers and the educational requirements with having a subspecialty in sports medicine? So to answer your question on athletic trainers, I'm going to just start off with a little bit of a foundation first. Um, all of our providers for USA Fencing have a, a subspecialty. They're a, sub, they're a specialist in sports medicine. So they've, they've met the requirements within their professional organization or their board of certification. Um to meet their standards of education within sports medicine. So every profession is different. If you're, if you're, if you're a PT, athletic trainer, chiropractor, or a sports, uh, a physician, um, all the requirements are just slightly different, um, in, in gaining that little bit more, actually a lot more education and what it means to, to dealing with and managing and diagnosing athletic injuries. Um, so the first recommendation I could definitely say right off the bat is uh, when you're searching for a sports medicine provider, you always want to try to find out somebody who has specialty training within that specialty within sports medicine. And uh, athletic trainers are uh, – it's an amazing profession and they usually, just like you said, uh, deal with athletes on a daily basis more than most other professions. Um, and they not only get to see them acutely, but they get to see them chronic, chronic, uh, having chronic injuries and helping them manage them and helping them refer them, uh, to the appropriate provider. Um, 
the scope of practice for athletic trainers is it's very simple. Um, anything under the umbrella of sports medicine. Sports medicine just means the the care, uh, the assessment, diagnosis, and management of athletic injuries. Um, and an athletic trainer, that's their scope. Uh, their scope is to assess an injury and to determine um, through their assessment what the differential diagnosis would be, what the possibility of that diagnosis would be. And to um, kind of manage that athlete appropriately. So if it's something that it looks like it's a little bit uh, uh, more of a catastrophic injury or more that might need a follow-up with a physician with imaging, whether it's an x-ray, MRI, or an ultrasound, CT, they could refer them to the appropriate provider um, to get those studies or that referral so that the athlete can have a uh, a confirmation of their diagnosis sometimes. Um, so a- uh, athletic trainers are, are responsible. That's their scope. Um, they're the fir- usually the first contact with the athlete when it actually happens. And uh, they're, they're the ones that try to help manage their care and get them the appropriate provider. Um, if you go down the spectrum, um, we also have uh, chiropractors, physical therapists, and uh, medical doctors. Medical doctors, we'll start off with medical doctors right off the, right off the bat. Um, if you're a primary care sports medicine physician, um, you have to go through a fellowship to do that training um, after your residency. So it's, a, it's another two years after you already do your residency for specialty in sports medicine. There's a few uh, areas in, in emergency medicine um, that allow uh, physicians to go into a subspecialty of sports medicine. You have to pick uh, one of, I think, one of four different specialties to even be considered to go into a subspecialty for uh, sports medicine. Once you choose that uh, route, then you do your fellowship after your after your um, residency. Um, <clears throat> any uh, any uh, provider with uh, sports medicine training is uh, their first. They're the, definitely the first line of defense in, uh, in athletic injuries and being able to guide athletes back into um, getting athletes back to the strip or back to the court and return to play. Um, physical therapists also have specialty in sports medicine training and chiropractors as well, um, each differing slightly in their educational requirements. But if I were to give any suggestion to our, our listeners or USA fencing demographic or any athletes out there actually, um, if you're looking for a sports medicine provider, find the ones that have specialty training, whether it's an athletic trainer um, with the credentials ATC behind their name, also chiropractors with a DACBSP behind their name. It's a diplomat in chiropractic sports medicine physicians. Um, physical therapists have the same, and then also you'll also see the same credentials behind. Uh, you'll see it under, underneath the MD's name as well. That would be my best suggestion. And there, you know, Every the role and the way we approach athletic injuries uh, across the spectrum might be slightly different based on profession, but in in general, we're pretty much all 100% evidence based. If you have the proper training, and we're going to be managing that uh, athletic injury pretty much in the same amount, uh, same way across the board. Cool. I think that's a good overview of the of the different ones that you may come into, uh, you know, come in contact, or if you're, you know, if you're an injured athlete or looking for somebody out there to look at, I think that's some good advice in telling people uh, what to look for and what they uh, might expect. Um, 
for that. The um, yeah, and I guess that. Uh, sorry, I rambled a little bit there. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think that's one of the things that if uh, you know club owners and other folks can do is is you know finding a contact out there where you've got someone, a medical person that you have a good relationship with, and you can hopefully you know send athletes to with a lot of confidence. Um, I, I had the when I was doing a lot of coaching in Atlanta and, and with distance runners, I befriended an orthopedic surgeon and one of the advantages I had was he gave me his nurses like his scheduling nurses direct line and if I had an athlete who was injured then I just gave that number to the athlete and they could call him they would get him in really quickly and that was important because my folks were usually training for a marathon and that marathon was going to be on a, on a certain day and you know they couldn't wait three weeks to see the doc so any kind of relationship like that you can have with a provider that uh, can help you out and that your trusting I think is a really good step for a, a lot of clubs to make and you may have a club member who's a physician who's willing to kind of serve in that uh, unofficial role if you will as the as the team doc even if they don't want to call it that right yeah yeah I would like to just to give you a little recap um, yep. if if uh, if if some of our listeners are wanting to uh, you know find a provider we do at us fencing have uh, resources available to you on our website at the sports medicine page you can go on into the page and you can look under sports medicine and find the tab um, and go to our national medical net, uh, national national medical uh, resources and there's a list of resources how to find a sports medicine primary care physician a sports uh, chiropractor uh, a sports physical therapist as well as athletic trainers there's little search engines there that you can click on the link and you can find a, uh, somebody within your local area that that, uh, that you could reach out to, whether it's your club or it's just for an individual a parent looking for a provider. Um, so there are ways to find those, and we did put those up on our website for U.S. Fencing. Um, the last thing I would say is um, I would strongly recommend seeking out these subspecialty uh, providers for in sports um, and not – try to use uh, primary care physicians or people with not uh, training in sports medicine just because, uh, you know, it's not their specialty and finding somebody with the proper education is always imperative. So, um, Yeah, there's a, there's a tendency for primary care docs to say, you got hurt, well, then just, you know, take three or four weeks off. And it's like, uh, you don't get it. You know? hey, that's, that's the, you hit the nail on the head there. That's, <laughs> I, I didn't say that, but... Yeah, we do, we, we do. We do. We do see that across the board. When you when you see somebody outside their, the specialty of sports medicine, you will get. You know that's not a bad advice because the body's. You know the body will heal itself. Um, but there are things that can be done from other proper management for that injury, whether it's therapeutic exercise and rehab, physical therapy, whether it's a, a strength conditioning plan so it doesn't come back, whether it's mobility within the joint whether it's some proprioceptive training, um, whether it's some biomechanical assessment that's causing this injury, or maybe it's a pre-underlying uh, uh, pathology that we're missing here that's uh, causing this to flare up. Uh, a sports medicine provider would be more inclined to find those uh, nuances than, and, than a primary. Uh, or I wouldn't want to just say a primary that generalizes too much than any other provider that's not a uh, specialist in sports medicine. Mm -hmm. Good. Hey, uh, the last thing, 
Can I just say one more thing? No, go ahead one more. I, I made a note here. I want to come back to a word you threw out, and I wanted to come back to that one. So, But finish up your thought first. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you, you threw out the word proprioceptive training there. And um, I, elaborate a little bit on that, what proprioception is, and then what kind of training you're talking about on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so proprioceptive training is a uh, type of uh, therapeutic exercise and rehab. It has its time and place. It's not something that needs to be worked on all the time. Um, it's basically, uh, it, proprioceptive basically means time and space, uh, where you can balance on one leg, um, with your eyes closed or not closed, you're using different, two different parts of your brain, uh, and you're taking out the visual system of your brain a little bit when you close your eyes using more of the cerebellum. But regardless, when you stand on one leg, all the muscles, uh, in your body have to fire, um, unique in a unique, uh, symphony of firing patterns to make sure that you don't lose your balance. And um, when you get in an injury state, um, those roles and those uh, sensory feedbacks from the nerves and and, uh, the Golgi tendons where the receptors in the tendon or the muscle spindles within the muscle, they send feedback to the central nervous system allowing you to balance. And you can balance really bad and you can balance really good, right? Um, When you get into injury, acute or chronic injury, those, that type of uh, balance and that, that type of uh, proprioceptive role of communicating with the ankle to your brain um, gets uh, injured as well and it has to be educated back to, back to norm, normalcy. So that's why we would use some proprioceptive education. Let's say you sprain your ankle tomorrow, fencing. Um, you know, you're going to have some swelling, you're going to have some discoloration, you're going to be sore, the muscles around are going to be sore. Um, and that feedback loop to the brain and for, for that to allow that is not going to be working well. So we do a lot of neuromuscular reeducation, proprioceptive uh, feedback, uh, therapeutic exercises to help the athlete get back sooner. Very good. You were going to say something, I want to come back to something just popped in my head when you talked about the sprain of the ankle and I had thought about earlier but i want to come back to it but you had a thought you wanted to finish i can wrap my thought up at the end because i think it'll tie it all together super um we keep talking about ankle sprains and i don't know why i didn't think of this uh before um so at one time the recommendation for like a sprained ankle was was rice like rest ice compression elevation and somewhere in the deep dark recess of my mind the last few years there's been a at least some people have proposed a change in that, um, in what you do for that. Um, does that ring a bell with you? And I can't yes. remember the, there, yeah. there's a new acronym for that and it escapes me, which is really bad and I'm going to try to remember it. But no, maybe okay. if you can take, take off from my uh, lead in on that and uh, go for it. Thanks. I'm, ha- I'm happy you don't know the acronym because uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so let's talk a bit, a bit about uh, management of chronic injuries and rice price or whatever you want to call it rice basically stands for rest ice compression and elevation um you know i a couple years ago there was a physiologist that came out uh this you know in sports medicine it's all about branding nowadays with social media and they have all they have hundreds of techniques for therapy and um, I'm not a big proponent of all these certifications and these types of things because um, it's a it's kind of like a, a group think uh, you know it's the new hot topic and everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon and say it's interesting. 
So let's talk a little bit about cryotherapy and price or rice. <clears throat> um, the whole point of uh, rest ice compression elevation is to control the environment uh, of an acute injury. So let's say you sprain your ankle. Well, let's put some rice. <laughs> let's uh, uh, let's rest it. Let's put some ice and some co- compression and elevation. Um, and the reason why we want to do that because we know it's going to swell. We know it's going to swell. And the swelling actually impedes uh, management of the injury. It's a protective mechanism. It's bleeding. It's got to, you know, it's got to coagulate. It's got to put down some platelets and stop the bleeding and then some scar tissue and all this uh, healing process that goes over the next three weeks of injuring that injury. Uh, usually takes about three weeks to, to get that scar tissue laid down and so on. Um <clears throat> When we can, as a as a medical provider in sports medicine, we if we can control the environment, we can get an athlete to return to play a lot faster than than we can if we don't control the environment. So let's say I don't do rice for that injury for the ankle injury. I don't rest it, elevate it, compress it. Then um, we're going to have a lot of inflammation due to gravity, and the recovery is going to take a lot longer because we have to get all that swelling out of there, um, and that swelling will actually you know kind of piss off some you have a lot of chemical mediators in there and inflammatory mediators in there that are going to cause pain uh, to the ner- surrounding nerves and structures so that's the reason why we do uh, rest ice and compression elevation um, and it's important um, why so now we need to get into sam's big question here and and that's uh you know the new bandwagon that came around and said that ice really doesn't do anything or is rice impeding the healing process? Ice, sorry, ice impeding the healing process. So there's always going to be an argument and some ambiguity in this. Okay, um, the body's response to trauma or injury are there for a reason. I don't think anybody in this conversation uh, or podcast can disagree with me. Is that the body's response is, is there for a reason, whether it's to protect it from further injury. Or uh, we could go down the rabbit hole here. Um, Once we stop letting the um, body do its natural response to to healing for an injury, um, are we impeding it? Are we helping it? Uh, Those are the the really tough, tough questions. So a couple years ago, um, I'm an evidence-based guy and I love research. I read it all the time, and so I I pulled about a hundred articles of cryotherapy and rest ice compression elevation and kind of looked at what the literature says about what it actually does physiologically. Um, and the overwhelming answer in a nutshell is that uh, ice manages pain, really doesn't do much with the swelling in itself. It does uh, slow down, uh, does vasoconstrict up to 20 minutes. If you leave it on over 20 minutes, it can start to vasodilate and be counterproductive for an acute injury which would mean it would start bleeding and swelling more if you left on the ice too long. Um, just wanted to say that because I know a lot of people just leave it on for an hour and, oh, yeah, no. that's fine. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's a question that I get asked because friends of mine know that I have a background in physiology and other areas, and it's one of those things that's like, yeah, it's you know like 15 minutes on, you know, 20 minutes on, whatever, some along there used to take 15. and But, the, yeah, that's a real common question that people have, and it's real – basic and good to know well so yeah so it's it's like i said every person is different the environment is different uh, the area that you put the ice in uh ice on is different um 
Let me finish up. I'll tell you about the physiology of that and the timing and how often you can ice. I'll, I'll give you all that information in just a second. Sounds good. Um, I'll finish up with the, the rice. So the ice doesn't really do much for the swelling, what we know from a literature standpoint. The elevation and compression are key components of controlling the swelling in the area. Um, and when you can control the environment, if I could have a really, really bad ankle sprain, um, and I've dealt with tens of thousands of ankle sprains over the last 12, I don't know, so many, it's ridiculous. But we can get an athlete with a really significant ankle sprain back to fencing um, within a week um, with support, obviously, because that ligament is not uh, not strong enough at that point to be able to withstand the stress and that motion. Uh, but we can get them back to be able to, to, to actually compete um, in a fairly decent time frame. If we don't manage the uh, environment, then we cannot. Um the other thing that came out during this this time of you know trying to change the paradigm of uh, rice dust, uh, rest ice elevation um, and compression was that heat might be more uh, conducive after 72 hours to bring fresh nutrients, bring new blood supply into the area, and so on and so forth. And that is a you know something that we do with other types of modalities um, to bring for new fresh blood into the area to help. Uh, nourish the injury and get it to heal a little bit faster. Um, so that's kind of a, a nutshell of uh, the the new fad of not icing injuries. Um, um, and does the ice actually do anything itself or taking ice out of the whole equation? I don't think it really matters all that much over over the long haul. I don't think you're going to see ice um, on a microscopic level, uh, looking at the physiology, you're not going to see too much change, um, whether you have ice or not from the research that I've read. So as far as icing goes, um, how often, uh, how long it depends on the body part. Um, the, the basics that everybody should know, uh, that you could take away from this podcast is, um, you're going to feel a couple things. We call it C band, uh, like C as in cold, <laughs> B as in burning, A as in aching, and N as in numbness. So you're going to feel these these sensations. And once it's numb, it's done. Uh, that's how we always used to say it. Um, so if you don't feel anymore, it's not burning, aching, and those things are gone, then you can take off the ice. Um, how often can you ice? Well, you can ice, up, you can ice every two hours up to 20 minutes or, or so. Um, sometimes really bony, prominent areas like the ankle, the heel, the hand, the fingers, um, those don't like ice because the bone's getting a lot of the cold and the, the bone, it's kind of painful. <laughs> so um, those don't take a long time to get to the numbness stage as compared to like a quadriceps or a big muscle group. Hmm. Okay. So that's how you can variate the time a little bit. So as long as it's numb, it's done. You don't have to really worry about a time frame, but we always like to keep it in within that 20-minute range. And then two hours later, once you're done icing, you could probably ice again if you really wanted to. And like I said, it's mainly for pain management. Um, but if you, we always like to keep those injuries compressed. So um, if you compress it, you're going to control the environment and reduce the amount of swelling in the area, and you won't lose a lot of joint range of motion if you're compressing the joint. 
So, so compressing something with just an ace bandage wrapped around it, that sort of thing when we're talking about compression. Yeah. We want compression, yeah. We want to control the environment, not let that ankle look like a, uh, a lemons on the side of it. Um, you know, <laughs> If we can get that environment uh, and not allow that swelling to get in there, then they're more likely to get back to sport sooner. And that's where the elevation comes in. You mentioned earlier the gravity. If if when that yeah. ankle, all that it, lymphatic fluid, yep, gets stuck yep. in interstitial spaces, and yeah, when milk massage, getting somebody to elevate their leg and kind of milking uh, the entire swelling out of the leg towards the heart. Those are the types of things that we do um, for those acute injuries. Yeah, I mean, we did something simple in high school track. We would uh, we would be done. We would elevate our legs to help some of that the fluid, you know, come back towards the heart and get circulated around so you didn't feel that heavy leggedness um, after some workouts. And, I, you know, I, it makes sense. I'm, I'm not sure that as short a time as we did it, it did any good or not, but because usually, you know, we were high school kids. We were itching to get up and go do something else. But yep. um, I remember, you know, still I remember when I heard this later, I went, oh, we used to do that in high school. My, my coach might have known what he was talking about. Um I had a really good coach. I shouldn't say that. Um, cool, Jamie. Well, you had uh, said you wanted to do a little wrap-up. So um, as we come to a close here, how about you wrap it up, and then uh, we'll say our goodbyes. Absolutely. Um, so on your original email, you had asked a, a few areas that we wanted to speak about um, during this podcast, and uh, I wanted to give the listeners some take-home messages that they could actually use and implement today. Fantastic uh, to 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 their clubs or their athletes or even themselves if they're uh, an athlete listening. Um, what we what I've seen in my experience over fencing over the last uh, twenty plus years um, and working with the national team um, since two thousand ten was my first world championships as a medical provider at the Senior Worlds Championships in Paris is that um, a lot of the injuries that we see in fencing are uh, an accumulation of repetitive stress, or types of chronic injuries and types of things. What we see, every sport has, almost almost every sport has significant asymmetries in their sport, and fencing is very unique in their asymmetries. is just like other, other sports. Some sports that don't have asymmetries are spraining down the line, swimming, those types of things. Um, the only asymmetries that they have is their dominant versus their non-dominant arm, uh, where fencers are usually just lunging on one leg. Um, so there's a lot of asymmetries in the sport. Um, and as we age, um, Sam, I know you know, as I do too, I'm going to be 41 in a couple of days. Um, we lose mobility as we age. And with fencing, it's, it's imperative that we maintain mobility. When I see these young kids, I, I start to evaluate these younger kids in NACs and see them. I see that they have good hip mobility, um, and the hips is the number one place that we're looking at, uh, at maintaining mobility for fencers. Um, maintaining good hip mobility and flexibility is probably the, one of the biggest, uh, I think, precursors to, to chronic injuries and injuries down the line for these Olympic athletes uh, because they've been doing the you know, if you look at fencers walk down the street, um, if you just think about it for a second, not all, but a good portion of them look like their feet are pointed way outwards compared to a normal individual. And it's because they've been in that fencing position for so many years, 10 years, doing millions of lunges every day. 
Um, and that adaptive changes to the glutes and the hips and the loss of mobility in the hips makes them walk that way. And that changes biomechanics in the knee and the ankle, and it puts pressures on the spine and so on and so forth. So I would say the one, the biggest message I would say take away uh, from this is uh, simple things coaches, athletes, and parents can do is um, take care of your bodies. Have their athletes take care of their bodies and maintain mobility with stretching after practice, as well as uh, taking care of the tissues that you're asking to work every single day in fencing. So. Um, just like my car needs an oil change and needs to be taken care of, uh, my muscles as an athlete also need to be taken care of. So rolling those muscles out on a foam roller, um, and try, trying to take care of those tissues uh, that have so much stress on them every single day with all the bouts and lessons that we do is imperative, I think, and overall of having a healthy career in fencing. So I just wanted to just, uh, say that out outright and, um, let let the uh, let the coaches, parents, and uh, athletes know that they need to take care of themselves and uh, they need to maintain their hip mobility if they can. Yeah, I, I think for so many athletes, you know, it, the the stretching is the first thing that goes out the window, right? You yeah, it's we're lazy, we're yeah, human, we're human. Or, yeah. It's just ah, uh, it really you know boring. I, and, I'm, it's boring. I, I'll be the first to admit. I tell I've always told the athletes I've given them stretches throughout the run. I'm also the first person who will not do them as consistently as I should. And I'm older than 41 and I've noticed my range of motion in a lot of areas is, is, you know, has decreased steadily because I have not kept doing that. And I have friends of mine that go to, you know, yoga classes regularly and I've noticed that, you know, their mobility is much, much better than mine. Um, and, and that's a fun way of doing the stretches and everything else versus just I finish my run and, oh, now I'm going to stretch for 15 minutes. It's like, yeah, I'd rather go do something else for that 15 minutes. And it, it catches up with you. It does. It does. Uh, a, good, hard way. <laughs> a, a good point to that is the I don't know how many times you've been to Asia, but a lot of places in the country uh, across the globe um, – there are populations that don't have toilets and they have to squat to use the restroom. Um, and it, interestingly enough, um, that those, those populations don't have hip replacements or knee replacements. Um, and the reason why is yeah. because they're using the mobility and the strength that they have every single day, uh, once a day. And they all can squat down and sit in that squat for hours um, and you get one American over the age of 21 and they're, they're, they're in agony, um, <laughs> just to have them in that position. So, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yep. And that's, that's the hundred percent. If you don't use the muscle mass that you have, then you, you atrophy, you lose it. If you don't have mm -hmm. the uh, mobility that you use every day and you're pushing your joints to those limits a little bit and uh you're gonna lose that mobility it's really hard to get it back it's uh, it's yeah. like going to school and trying to make an a after you did really bad on your first test you gotta it's easier to keep a good grade than it is to, <laughs> to get a new one right so yep. it's the same thing it goes for for our bodies it's it's hard to get somewhere but if you maintain what you have you're gonna have a healthier career yeah I, I finally say I have a personal trainer background as well, and when I would, uh, when I was being taught how to teach somebody to do squats, you know, one of my the instructor who taught me that said, you know, watch, watch a uh, 
You watch like a one or two year old pick up something. They have perfect squat form. And they learn at some point in time by watching us to bend over and pick things up. And, um, and, and that's been driven back in as I started teaching other people how to do squats. And then it's funny you mentioned Asia. I just saw an article somewhere online about, um, sort of the Asian squat and how Americans have trouble with that and, um, how Americans, when they do that, generally up on their toes, whereas the Asians, you know, their heels yeah. are on the ground. As we teach people to do squats and strength and conditioning, push your heels through the floor. And they had pictures of, of different, you know, people from Asia doing this. And I was looking at it going, huh, never thought about that. So it's weird that you brought that up after I just read that in the last couple of days. So. Yep. No, I saw that same article, I believe. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, come, we do come up on our toes. We lose ankle mobility, mm-hmm. um, and they have ankle mobility, so they, don't, they can keep their feet flat and go down in that squat. We can't um, because we're, we haven't been using it every single day, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they have. So Yeah, exactly. Well, very good. Uh, well, Jeremy, thank you. I think you've given uh, listeners a lot of takeaway points on here, things that um, – can go out and start using, you know, stretching, mobility, those sorts of things that we can all incorporate in and um, and do a better job of not just uh, tossing those out the window because they're boring and um, I'm rushing off to go do something else or have another meeting to go to or something like that. So they do tend to go out the window first. So um, so thank you for your time and um, thank you for helping out our athletes and, and our members at the NACs and other events and uh, with you and your staff that do such a great job at the medical tent. Well, it's been a pleasure um, having me on today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And if you, uh, I'd be more than happy to come back if you invite me again. We will do that. We'll come up with some topics for that. So uh, for now, that's uh, the end of uh, today's podcast. And again, thank Jeremy Summers, the USA Fencing Director of Sports Medicine. Take care and have a great day, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, this is your host, Sam Callen. Once again, thanking you for joining us for today's podcast. Once again, if you have suggestions for topics or guests, please email me at s.callan, that's C-A-L-L-A-N, at usafencing.org. And I also want to thank Lee Rosevere. The music you hear on the intro and that I'm talking over right now is provided by Lee. He does that for podcasts for free. So if you're interested, please uh, Google him. It's uh, Lee, L-E-E, Rosevere, R-O-S-E-V-E-R-E. And uh, join us for our next podcast. Thank you.